You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System, and I want to welcome my co-host, Sandy Werness from the Global Autoimmune Institute. Welcome, Sandy. Hey, Vanessa. As many of you know, Sandy and I just got back from a glorious week in San Diego at Digestive Disease Week. I hope you all heard the podcast we recorded with Dr. Jocelyn Sylvester live from the conference hall. If you didn't, be sure to tune into that episode as well. Today, Sandy and I are going to discuss some of the other sessions we attended and some of the big lessons we learned from some of the best minds in gastroenterology and nutrition. So I'm really excited for this conversation, Sandy. I know I walked away from the conference really inspired and just my mind rolling about all of the things to come in the world. So how did you feel after the conference? Oh, I thought it was really amazing. And uh, one of the most exciting parts, not only was all of the incredible knowledge that is developing in uh, digestive diseases and, and celiac disease and autoimmune diseases relating to the GI um, system, but also getting a hint about what lies ahead and what else needs to be done. Absolutely. That was really beautifully said, Sandy. So I want to start talking about one of my favorite sessions, and you know, in full disclosure, I am a huge Dr. Ed Liu fan. Um, he's from Colorado Children's Celiac Disease Program, and he's always been one of my favorite um, pediatric gastroenterologists. But he did this awesome session with Dr. Benjamin Lebwall from the Columbia University Celiac Disease Center, where they went head-to-head in a debate over the pros and cons of mass screening for celiac disease. Um, it was it was really fun to watch them because they they were each assigned a topic, so they didn't get to choose the position that they had to debate. They were given it. Um, ironically, I think they both agree on the right answer, but it was pretty cool to watch them debate it. So yeah, it was an amazing session. It was so interesting, beautifully um, presented, and just um, it, and Dr. Liu is at the forefront, for example, in also diagnosing. Uh, uh, correlative autoimmune diseases for celiac patients. Absolutely. So let's just sort of go through quickly what the two were, were, were promoting. So Dr. Lebwall, he was assigned the case against screening the general population for celiac disease, while Dr. Liu was assigned the position of being pro-screening the entire population for celiac disease. So Dr. Lebwall spoke first, and he pointed out a number of reasons that we shouldn't necessarily be screening everybody across the country for celiac disease. He pointed out things like there's a scare factor in people being concerned that they're going to be diagnosed with a disease. He noted that just because you can screen for something doesn't mean that you should screen for it. Um, And that just because you could identify the conditions, they're not necessarily things that could always cause bad health. Um, And he said that asymptomatically screened patients, many of these people were, or actually mostly all of them, were not having reactions before they were screened to gluten. But now that they adopt a gluten-free lifestyle, they're starting to notice things and having reactions when they're exposed to gluten. So they all of a sudden hate the gluten-free diet, they hate the doctor that diagnosed them, and they feel like out of the blue their life was ruined for just the fact that they happen to be screened. So, you know, great he, stuff, today, Vanessa. Just great. He made some some good mm-hmm. points as to why people who don't feel sick shouldn't necessarily be screened for something. 
But, you know, what I thought was really important that he then moved to was talking about even though he's not promoting not screening for celiac disease, he doesn't mean not testing. But his point was that we should test when there is an appropriate reason to and that patients have described symptoms and a physician has vigilantly decided that celiac disease is a likely diagnosis and has made the decision with the patient to test them. I thought it was really interesting to hear his analysis of what would actually happen and how accurate the results would be were there to be a mass screening and the fact that he uh, determined um, very elegantly that it, the results would be too inaccurate to be very valuable. Right. And I think it's a really good point you make, Sandy, that we have excellent tests to screen for celiac disease, but they're not 100% accurate. And when you employ a test that's not 100% accurate to the mass population, there's a, a good chance of, of error and getting people that yeah, are larger, falsely yeah, positive. That we would, that, then it really seems to appear. So, so if you have a 98% uh, accuracy rate, it actually ends up being inaccurate in a much larger percentage than the 2%. So that was interesting to me. Yeah, I found that really fascinating, too, that while you want Mm -hmm. to identify all these people because theoretically screening them early could prevent long-term complications, development of other autoimmune diseases, all sorts of things, what about these people who are going to be falsely positive for celiac disease and then change their entire life unnecessarily? Exactly. Um, so then let's flip to Dr. Liu, where he was assigned the pro-screening platform. And, you know, he opened this presentation with, I don't have a lot of good data to support this position because there's not. <laughs> you know, he pointed out the benefits of um, screening would increase awareness. We could catch it earlier to prevent complications um, and that we could reduce, you know, perhaps the stigma around having celiac disease. Uh, Don't you think it was so interesting that he looked and showed us the data from the studies that had been ongoing in Denver of the children born between 1993 and 2004 that showed that the children by age of 15 in that study had a 1.9% chance, uh, or actually a 3% chance of having celiac disease, 1.9% uh, chance of having uh, biopsied celiac disease, which to me sounded surprisingly high. How about you? Yeah, but I think that's what you may see if we were doing population screening, that because they are screening all these people in Denver, they're catching the cases and they're catching them really early. So I, I think he said, I don't have his slides in front of me, but I, I believe he said that they were t- um, catching most kids by the age of five. So, yes. you know... They noticed the, that the, the most rapid development was from zero or from age one to five years. Yep. Uh-huh. So, you know, that show, you know, these kids are, I mean, it's sort of a blessing, right? Like I was diagnosed, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 21 and in college and miserable. And I had been nutrient depleted like my whole life. But if I had been diagnosed when I was five, you know, all of my symptoms, all that being a sick kid would have gone away. And so, yeah, I kind of do wish I had been screened when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, I'm not... Absolutely. Yes, it would have made a huge difference. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, maybe maybe there is some case for it. Um but, you know, what I, I really liked about his talk was that he tried to suggest some useful ways in which we could approach screening that would mitigate some of the concerns that Dr. Lovell had. 
So, you know, he talked about um, using HLA screening to look at the genetics um, at birth. So that would immediately eliminate more than 60% of the population from needing future screening. So right there, you're eliminating a huge need of screening for later. Yeah, it was great to see his charts uh, laying out the percentage, really the high percentage of uh, that you would catch with HLA, which is the which is the, the gene, the relevant gene screening. Because in 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 one of the studies, um, if you have a double HLA gene, then you have um, a fifteen percent chance of having celiac disease, for example. So that he he, he proposed that kind of screening as being as having a much greater risk of success and also um, efficiency uh, for screening for celiac disease. Absolutely. But perhaps my favorite thing that he suggested was combining celiac screening with testing for other autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes. And instead of just, you know, doing too many things, combining this grouping of autoimmune conditions together so that families and kids will know early on and hopefully be able to treat them early on and prevent development of other things that, that come with these things that aren't treated. Absolutely, and that's the critical point. It's not just celiac disease that we're concerned with and that is the danger. It's all of the other autoimmune diseases and all of the other uh, damage and co-existing conditions that people can suffer from uh, because of celiac disease. For sure. So now, Dr. Liu left us at the end of the presentation with this very interesting thought. Will this conversation change when the first drug to treat celiac disease becomes available? I have to think it will, because the rationale for not screening, sure, there you still have the false positive piece, but these people who don't want to go on a gluten-free diet, well, maybe they won't have to if there's a medication to treat it, and also now there's a financial incentive for physicians to be diagnosing. Absolutely. Well, it's a great dream and, and hope for all of us that something like that will be developed. We're a ways off from it, though, but it's great to have so many people trying to come up with what will really work. Absolutely. So now speaking of money, how about we shift gears for a second and talk about the economic burden of celiac disease? So there was a presentation by Dr. Song Wang from Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Um, his team did a review of healthcare utilization of patients with celiac and compared their usage of the healthcare system to healthy controls over a two-year period. So they looked at things like clinical diagnoses, autoimmune comorbidities, hospital admissions, emergency room visits, specialty care, um, laboratory or radiology services, and pharmacy cost, amongst several other things. And, you know, I found the results fascinating, although not really shocking at all. You know, we we already know that celiac has related conditions, and it was cool to see the charts that they, they showed in their slides showing the breakdown of celiac patients diagnosed with autoimmune diseases compared to healthy controls. So there were huge increases for patients with celiac in things like thyroid disease, Crohn's, type 1 diabetes, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel syndrome. And, you know, it was one of the first times I had seen a bar graphs like that really showing how dramatically raised the risk is for patients with celiac disease of getting those things compared to the healthy population. 
It was a great way to chart that, actually. That was the most important part of the study, in my view. I mean, this was a two-year study, and it did show differences in, you know, in statistics with regard to uh, various kinds of treatments. Some were higher than others, like GI visits were like 67% versus 12% for celiacs versus non-celiacs. But you're right, that was a really critical uh, part of the study that, in fact, um, multiple conditions and comorbidities were observed um, in connection with the celiac patients. Uh, and that, that was a big cause uh, a cause of the increased economic burden, the healthcare costs that they, they incurred. And not only that, but um, his his one of his conclusions was that uh, it's the study suggested that there are certainly opportunities for earlier identification of those autoimmune disease conditions as well as celiac disease. So for sure, absolutely. So now the um, the big finding that they that they put out was that on average, patients with celiac disease spent an average of $11,696 more annually overall on healthcare costs compared to individuals who did not have celiac disease or their healthy control population. So, you know, I actually found the numbers that they calculated for healthy controls to be pretty high. Um, they said healthy controls spent an average of $22,839 a year compared to $34,536 um, for celiac patients. Oh, sorry, over the two-year period. Sorry. You're right. Over the two-year period. Um, but, you know, that has really made me start thinking about how much do I spend on health care and how much is billed for health care for my kids every year. So this morning I started going through and just doing a little bit of tracking. That number maybe we'll talk about in one of our next podcasts when I've got, I'm going to go through every claim that was submitted for the last two years for my kids and compare my child with celiac to my child without celiac disease and see where I get. Well, that's a great idea. That's interesting. <laughs> we all could sort of take a look at that too. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I found it to be, um, I found it to be not as um, much of a difference that I would have expected either. Um, so I, I mean, I think I think it was a, just a limited study for two years. It's a great start, and it would be wonderful to have some other studies to follow it up. Absolutely, and also how we can bring those dollars down. You know, is it that there is a significant drop in the two years post-diagnosis? You know, theoretically, by that point, they should be, you know, their, their gut should be healing. They shouldn't be having as many symptoms or needing as much testing anymore. So, you know, I would really like to see what those numbers look like, you know, two years, four years, ten years down the road. Yeah, there were some things that really the study didn't include since it really, it just took a two-year snapshot of these patients. So there are some variables that were not um, examined or included, such as when they were diagnosed um, and uh, really what other conditions they had necessarily. So uh, he, he also noted that he thought probably uh, in that study, the study did not include some celiac disease uh, patients who were severe. So it would be great to replicate and, and and um, carry on with some other studies to, uh, and in, and I am wondering really if um, we'll find a, a greater difference in the future with other studies. Absolutely. 
So one of the other studies that I found to be really interesting was presented by Dr. Amanda Carty from the Mayo Clinic. And if you look at the title of the presentation, it really has, it, it doesn't really talk about what I'm going to talk about because it was looking at markers um, that they would see in celiac disease patients when they're exposed to gluten and comparing it to markers um, seen or not seen in patients with non-celiac gluten sensitivity or that do not have either. But what I found so interesting about this study is how patients reported they felt on a gluten challenge versus on placebo. So this study had three different groups. They had a group of patients who had confirmed celiac disease, a group of patients who had been diagnosed with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and then a group of patients who were healthy controls. And they were assigned to either receive gluten or placebo. And then they asked them to report, they, they drew blood to look at the IL-2 levels, which would then um, relate to the T, the uh, T cell receptors, to see if those cells developed in, in all of the patients or in only in the celiac patients. So what I found really fascinating about this was the charts looking at how people felt after the gluten or placebo challenge. So it was really surprising result, wasn't it? It was so surprising. And it really, you know, changes how much credibility you give to patients reporting that they were glutened. So here's what they found. Eight out of 10 patients who received gluten said that they got gluten and experienced symptoms. Nine out of 10 patients who with celiac disease who got placebo also said that they had symptoms and thought they had been glutened. Nine out of 10 patients with non-celiac gluten sensitivity who were given gluten said they had symptoms, but also nine out of 10 of these non-celiac gluten sensitive patients who were given placebo thought they had received gluten and experienced symptoms. So basically everybody, regardless of if they had celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or if they were given gluten or given a placebo, all had symptoms, well, most of them had symptoms, um, regardless of if it was gluten or not gluten. But then... There's so many variables, aren't there? There are I mean, so when, when many variables. <laughs> but even in the healthy control group, six out of 10 who were given gluten said they had symptoms, and three out of 10 in the healthy group who got placebo said they had symptoms. So even the healthy people said that they reacted to the gluten challenge. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so maybe this is something that um, we need to, um, that needs to be done a few more times, right? Yeah. But this really, this relates so perfectly to Dr. Sylvester's work on the doggy bag study where she not only tested the urine and stool of patients, but she also tested their food. And out of all of her subjects, only one person was ever able to correctly identify when there was really gluten in their food that correlated to gluten in their urine and their stool. So while these studies are all extremely small, you know, we're talking about 10 patients here and there, they need to be replicated, but it's still pretty interesting. And you know, our team has informally tried to figure out when we've been glutened. You know, many of us at Children's National also have celiac disease. So uh, my colleague Kate and I, you know, when we feel like, oh, we got glutened, we've done the test and we've still never been able to get one positive. So, you know, you never know. That's amazing. Um, were we actually glutened or did we drink too much wine or was it um, food poisoning? You know, what was it that actually made us not feel so great? 
maybe it was something else, in, you know, in the food. That's right. That you that you had that's not actually gluten because um, that leads us to Dr. Frazano's uh, study that we'll go into later about um, wheat and uh, what else is it is there in wheat that uh, causes bad reactions in people aside from just the wheat proteins? Absolutely. So now before we leave this gluten challenge um, study that I'm talking about, I do want to just give Amanda Carty credit for the great work that she did because the real purpose of her study was to look at whether or not um, there is an IL-2 response in celiac patients after a gluten challenge and whether or not that also happens in patients with non-celiac gluten sensitivity or healthy subjects. And what they did find is that when patients with celiac disease are exposed to gluten, there is a rapid um, IL-2 response where there is not in the patients they looked at with non-celiac gluten sensitivity or healthy subjects, which they concluded would shed light on ways um, to perhaps diagnose people with celiac disease in the future who are already on a gluten-free diet. So, you know, they did have a really Excellent. noble great. cause um, in doing the study, and I think that they're on to something really great here. Definitely. So now, Sandy, I know that we have lots and lots of topics to talk about on our next podcast in relation to the microbiome. Um, you know, one that I'm excited to talk about next time is looking at the microbiomes of babies and what this, uh, the CD GEM study is looking at up in Boston. But I know, tell our listeners about some of the other ones that we're going to talk about next week. Definitely. Well, at this conference, there was a lot of focus on the microbiome because, in fact, there is uh, in the scientific and, and medical world. So we will talk about how changes in microbiome affect behavior and whether probiotics or prebiotics help in with anxiety and depression, and if so, how that works. Also, what about the FODMAP diet? What difference does that make? How does that affect the microbiome? Does does that make any difference in how, and in fact, with a FODMAP diet, which cuts out uh, fructose, does that make a difference in uh, neurological, uh, neuronal pathways um, and signaling between the gut and the brain? Uh, how does the gut communicate with the brain? How do antibiotics and antidepressants affect the microbiome? And in addition, what about other parts of the microbiome besides simply bacteria. What about fungus? Fungus is a new, uh, newly explored, beginning to be explored area. And uh, how, what fungus do we have in the microbiome and how does that affect us? That, that's another very large looming question that scientists are looking into. That's just to start, Vanessa. There's more. <laughs> well, to all of our listeners, if you are interested in all of these topics on the microbiome, be sure that you also tune into the podcast next week where Sandy and I will dive deeper into all of these studies and more from Digestive Disease Week. So we want to thank you for tuning in today, and we will talk to you again next week. <laughs>